You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hey, everybody. I'm back with my now good friend, Dr. Justin Dubin. He is a fellowship-trained urologist and andrologist focusing on men's health. He cares for fertility problems, sexual issues, low testosterone, testicular pain, and basically anything that penis owners and testicle owners can come up with. He's back in Florida because he just completed his fellowship, and now he's a full-blown, full-time practicing urologist. Yeah. I'm your real doctor. Welcome. And a reminder to everybody, this is not, uh, we're not practicing medicine on this podcast. This is for education and entertainment purposes only, which I love saying, but he's going to, we're going to talk all things men and penis owners today. So thank you so much for joining me. Kelly, thank you so much for having me. This is so awesome. I'm a big fan of you. I'm a big fan of this podcast and what you do. Obviously we were talking about it before we went live, but this is awesome. I'm, I'm really excited to be talking with you today. Oh, I'm so excited that you're here. And you have your own podcast, Man Up, A Doctor's Guide to Men's Health, which you do with another urologist. So we're tripling the amount of urologist podcasters in the world, which is awesome. And we need more. And we need more. You're we right. We need more. Uh, absolutely. We're all here to help people. And what's great is that, you know, we were talking about it. You talk about very sensitive issues that people don't want to talk about. And that's what also spurred our podcast, because as we'll be discussing, you know, a lot of men don't want to talk about their sexual health problems, although they are definitely more discussed in general than female sexual health problems. And and, and that's why what you're doing is so great because you're really normalizing the conversation and destigmatizing it and making sure that people, you know, understand that there are things that we can do for you as long as you come in and talk about it. Totally. Yeah. And a lot of people who listen to my podcast, listen with their male partners and talk about it. So that's why I really love bringing on not only because we need to represent everybody on the podcast, but because it it really helps people start talking to each other about their issues. So every everybody needs to know about men's health. For sure. So why don't, why don't men go to the doctor? So I think it's a few things really, but I think the big one is really that there is a stigma of masculinity, I think, when I think of my patients. And I think when you picture this guy, this manly man that that guys like to think of, you think of a strong guy, jacked muscles, great energy, outstanding libido, who's great in the bedroom, you know, a lot of kids, great family. All of these things are really things that guys associate with being a man. And when we're talking about men and men's health, All of those things are usually the problems that guys can deal with. Erectile dysfunction, low energy, they're gaining weight, they have obesity, they're losing muscle mass. So, you know, a lot of things I think that men picture what they picture a guy to be are the things that they don't want to admit that they have problems with. So I think it's very hard for guys to discuss this. And we actually have some data to support this. Um, There was a paper out of Northwestern, one of my mentors when I was training there, Dr. Halpern, Josh Halpern, he showed that about 30% of men who were concerned about their fertility were likely to discuss their concerns with the doctor. So only 30% of guys who are worried were actually seeing anything for anyone. And I think there's another component to it too. We like to try to figure things out on our own before we get help. And the analogy I usually use in my office is, all right, when I go to Ikea and I buy that furniture, 
I'm not reading the directions. I'm going to try and figure this shit out. <laughs> and then after about two hours of not being able to figure it out, yelling at myself and getting frustrated, then I'm going to go to the directions. I'm never going to ask anyone for help until I am really struggling and I realize that I do truly need help. So I think that there is another level of it where you know it comes to this idea of, I'm going to fix myself. I can do this. I'm the man, I'm the guy, I can do this, I don't need anyone. But you do. And sometimes it takes a little longer for for guys to figure that out. Totally. There's data for women that women wait on average seven years before seeing a doctor for bladder leakage. Bladder leakage, maybe maybe perhaps seven years. So long. That's really long. Yeah, yeah. And I would say in my practice, like this is like 13 years to move the needle. In the sex world, people on average, when they see me, they stopped having sex about seven years ago. 13 years ago, five years ago. Is there any similar data on men and like low testosterone or erectile dysfunction on like how long they wait before they go see a doctor? That's a great question. I'm not really sure. I mean, just anecdotally, it's not. It's definitely not even close to as long as that. I think, I mean, I see guys who get a prostatectomy and if they're not having sex in six months, they're losing their mind. And, and we know that that's a potential risk factor for erectile dysfunction. I do see guys, you know, a year where sometimes these younger guys, if they can't get it up once, they're coming to see me right away. So there is a different, I think, dynamic and, and time frame based off of age differentiation for sure within my population. Yeah, like you almost see the opposite of like, dude, it's my penis. I think I saw a wrinkle on it or something. I need to get it and get it checked. Like it's like the, the, the hyper alertness. Yes, there are some people like that. And I appreciate it though, because it still gives me an opportunity to have them come in, to educate them on their sexual health, their other health problems, and address whatever concerns they may have, really. So where do you, in your experience, or maybe there's data on this, where do men get most of their sex ed from? Are they getting it from porn? Are they getting it from an older brother, like their first lover when they were 17? Like where do most guys get sex ed from? I think at this point, I think there was a time and I, I was part of that age where I remember going to middle school when I turned 13 with my dad. They had father-son night. They had mother-daughter night. I have no idea if they still do that, where we would learn about puberty and sexual education. But I think those ways have kind of gone with, with the times. I, I think like everyone, I think guys really prefer to do their own research and they get all their information online, whether it's through porn. I don't know the statistics there, but I do know that 72% of adults use the internet for researching health information. And there's been a 40 to 70% increase in users seeking information via digital content since the start of the pandemic. And there was a new study that recently came out showing that about one third of Gen Z People, Gen Zers, it's a newer term for me, consult TikTok for health advice. And another 44% turn to YouTube before going to their doctor. And then about in that same survey, they showed that about 20% of Americans, that's one in five, reportedly consult TikTok before their doctor when seeking a treatment for a health condition. And they also, 20%, really say they trust health influencers more than their medical professionals in their community. More than. So wow. it's it's really one of those things where I think in the last two years since the pandemic with everything that we've 
gone through. I think more and more people are going online for their health information through TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. And it goes back to this idea of embarrassment, especially when it comes to sex. You know, that study also showed about 17% said that they would turn to influencers online to avoid judgment from medical professionals. So they're embarrassed. And and that goes back to what we were talking about before, why guys didn't want to come in the first place, because they feel like there's some kind of judgment being done. And I don't really know where that came from. I was shocked when I read that, because I think the one thing that we definitely learned about in med school is really show no judgment and be very, very open and honest now. And I obviously know that we are both physicians who definitely practice that and keep that close to our hearts for sure. You get to the point where you've been doing this long enough, like a guy came in and he's like, I don't want to tell you because and I was like, at this point in my career, I've heard it all. And if I haven't, like, please tell me because like, I'd like to keep hearing it all because it's all it's repetitive at some point. <laughs> and he so he told me and I'm like, oh, yeah, that happens to lots of dudes. And he's like, really? Every day it's a guy who's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but I've seen it. I would say 99% of the time. And, and I usually tell my patients, I'm like, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be, but you know, this is good. You're not special in this situation. You know, I've seen this many times. And because I've seen it so many times, I know how we can fix it. You know, we all know how to fix this. I know that it, it is embarrassing to talk about, but because you're here right now, we can talk about it and we can figure out a way to meet whatever goal you have, whether it's sexually, energy, erection, anything, we can figure it out together. That's awesome. One thing I see a lot when I talk to men is their lack of education in like the difference between libido, erections, orgasm, and ejaculation. Yeah. And them them all kind of thinking it's the same thing. And like as a doctor, you like you really got to hone in like is this a libido problem? Is it an erection problem? Is it an ejaculation problem? And like they don't know the difference between all of that. Yeah. Some of it there is overlap with understanding what is the cause, uh, the root cause of it. But but it is very important when I'm getting a history from someone that I'm really eliciting those specific things and I'm asking specific questions to kind of figure that out. And when we're talking about erections, I think some of the easiest things you can do is just, sometimes I'll just say in the simplest of the terms, like scale one to 10, 10 being the hardest erection, seven being able to penetrate. Tell me on average, without any medications, where you think you are. And then, you know, and that's kind of a very simple way of breaking down like where you are, I say, where were you, where do you want to be? Or if you take a medication, if you take Viagra, can you get from that six where you can't penetrate to an eight? And so you can kind of understand that part. And then I think when you're talking about things like ejaculation, a lot of guys come in. And I think one of your points is really that I found out a lot during my training, especially during my fellowship, was a lot of guys come in and they say that they don't last long enough. And we're and the concern is premature ejaculation. And then when you kind of elicit what that means, you say, well, how long are you lasting? How long were you lasting before? Was it always this way? And they say, well, you know, I'm 60 years old. I'm not lasting 20 minutes anymore. I'm lasting about seven minutes. I'm like, you know, that's pretty good. And you kind of have to put it in relation, but there's other things, right? Some guys say, when they say they're not lasting enough, they're actually talking about the refractory time, the ejaculatory refractory time. So they go, yeah, you know, I have sex, I orgasm, And it takes me three hours to get back into it again, to get it up again. 
And that is obviously a different problem from premature ejaculation, delayed ejaculation. So counseling patients appropriately is important. When you're talking about orgasm, obviously orgasm is a component. When we're talking about ejaculation, we're really talking about the semen or fluids leaving your penis. But when we're talking about orgasm, there's more involved. There's like a mental component. There's a physical component. You know, orgasm is really associated with, there are muscle contractions, the bulbospongiosis muscle and your around your urethra, pelvic contractions, just similar to a female who has pelvic contractions, I believe with orgasm as well. And, and you know, there's also this associated risk of oxytocin, prolactin, hyperventilation, facial grooming, which you can have without ejaculating and you can ejaculate without orgasming. And you don't have to have an erection to technically orgasm or, or ejaculate either. So you're right. There's a lot of different levels at it. And I do have guys who have flaccid penises who are able to orgasm and ejaculate with their partners and are happy with it. And they don't want to do anything because as long as they're happy. So there there are a lot of different components here that you kind of do have to elicit. And it's funny because a lot of people, especially guys, and sometimes their partners think that we are that simple. We're simple little animals. You know, we either get it up, we don't, we come, we don't, but that's not necessarily the truth. Yeah, there's so much different plumbing and hardware. And oh, by the way, the brain's involved, which I didn't really get that in the urology training, you know, in residency. That was like, the penis is involved and and we have Viagra, so there's no longer a problem. (laughs) And then then I got out and I got into female sex med, you know, and and I was like, "Ah, the, the sex therapist would tend to disagree with the urologists on this. Like there's, you know, the biopsychosocial and how's your relationship? And do you have anxiety? about sex, right? And the role that anxiety plays on penile function. Oh my God. So when I talk with patients about erections and erectile dysfunction, I kind of break it down into, you need five things to get a good erection. One, you need good blood flow to your penis. So obviously if you have heart disease, things like that, like vascular diseases, that can compromise that potentially. And we know that erectile dysfunction is an early sign for cardiovascular disease as well. Two, you need good nerves and that can be compromised through things like a prostatectomy or if you have diabetes. So, you know, a great way to counsel guys who maybe don't have erectile dysfunction yet, who are newly diabetic, you say, hey, listen, man, if you want to keep your erection, you got to get your sugars under control. Three, you need good testosterone levels. So that comes back into touch with function, low desire. They do have an overlap with low testosterone. So I I always consider getting a testosterone level if a guy comes in with ED. In fact, I usually do per our AUA guidelines kind of recommends that. And then the, the other two kind of go to your anxiety and the mental health aspect. The first one is you have to be attracted to or aroused. So, you know, obviously there is a component with your relationship with your partner. If you're not aroused or attracted to your partner, whether it is a physical thing, emotional thing, relationship, there's always an issue there. And then the second, the last thing is, you know, you have to be in the right state of mind, you know, anxiety, depression, you're not going to really be able to get a good erection. And then the other thing that people don't know, unfortunately, sometimes the medications that treat anxiety and depression can also compromise your erection. But when it comes to anxiety and depression, I I use the Robin Williams quote when I'm talking with my patients. I say, so Robin Williams had this awesome quote. He said, God gave man a brain and a penis and only enough blood to control one at a time. And it's very, very true. 
Because if you are in your head, you're anxious, and I see this with a lot of young guys, you're anxious, you're worried about performing, guess what? You're not going to be able to perform. So, you know, there is a huge biopsychosocial component for erections and sexual function in general. So you're 100% right. Totally. For testosterone in men and libido, are there a range of like, hey, I like to get guys like above 400 or is there not really a cutoff for libido specifically or erections? Same same question, erections. So how we define a low testosterone by the American Urological Association guidelines is a level less than 300. So you have to have a level less than 300 and you have to have signs and symptoms of testosterone deficiency. Now, this can be things we talked about, erectile dysfunction, low libido, low energy, issues with focus, decreased muscle mass, decreased body hair, not head hair, body hair, gynecomastia, and these are all signs and symptoms. If you have a combination of those levels and the symptoms, you are you can be considered to have testosterone deficiency. And when we're treating you for testosterone deficiency, there's a lot of different options, but the most common one is testosterone replacement therapy. Usually it's an injection or a gel. There's a subcutaneous pellet. There's also now oral pills that have just come back onto the market. So there's a lot of different ways that we can treat you for testosterone deficiency in a manner that you're comfortable with. And when we're trying to treat your testosterone deficiency, our goal is around 450 to 600 is our goal. What I usually do is after I start someone on this, I, I see them after about a month. It can take up to two to three months for guys. And I counsel them saying, you're not going to feel amazing right away necessarily. It can take some time. But you know, around that 450 to 600 range is where we, we really like to see guys sitting when they're on testosterone replacement therapy. Awesome. I love that. Yeah, I know there's some newer talk about a higher normal level for the younger a man is. So it'll be interesting to see at some point if the guidelines will shift to an age-based testosterone range or where we're going to go with that. It should eventually go that way because there's no way that if you just think about it logically, and obviously the data is just starting to come out. I think Dr. Jim Hoteling just put out a paper recently earlier this year. He showed that there is a difference in testosterone levels on average between you know different age groups. And what an ideal testosterone for a 70-year-old man is probably not going to be the ideal testosterone level for a 25-year-old guy who's suffering from low testosterone. But the other thing, there's other differences there is, you know, the 25-year-old guy, I might not put on testosterone replacement therapy because one of the biggest things that guys need to know and understand is that testosterone therapy, while good for a lot of people, and it's a great medication, and I prescribe it all the time, is really not for everyone necessarily. You know, and there's things you have to consider. And the biggest one is really fertility. What guys don't know is that taking testosterone can cause infertility. And really being in South Florida and practicing here and doing my residency here, I saw it all the time. Saw young guys taking testosterone when they were younger, coming in with their partner, and they're still on testosterone and they're, they're having issues with fertility. They can't figure out why they're having a kid. And I get a semen analysis and they have zero sperm. We stop the testosterone and sometimes it comes back, sometimes it doesn't. But about, the data shows about 60% of men on testosterone replacement therapy develop azoospermia, which is no sperm in their ejaculate. The good news though is if you do decide to stop at about the two-year mark, most guys get return of sperm to their ejaculate. But even when they do, we do have some baselines studies showing, you know, before testosterone and then coming back 
taking testosterone and coming back off of it, most of those guys only achieve about 85% of the levels of their semen quality or sperm numbers prior to their original testosterone usage. So these are important things to consider for sure. And there's other medications like Clomid HCG that we can talk about, or I can talk about with a patient to increase their testosterone naturally and not compromise their fertility. That's awesome. That's super. Thank you for explaining that. My The thing I'm curious about, and I see like, let's say he's 42, maybe he's a night shift worker. So his sleep's off. He's drinking some alcohol. He's having a super crappy diet. He's super stressed. Like So all the things that we know, lower testosterone, you know, and you say, hey, if you change your lifestyle, you can get your testosterone up, right? So this isn't somebody who's born with a congenital low hormones or anything. What's the fear of if, let's say he doesn't do that. He just wants a quick fix. Doc, give me the, the testosterone. What's the fear that you can never get off of it because testicles will never start making testosterone? I, am, am I saying that right? Like my fear is like, don't get on it if you can like get there naturally. Because are, are you going to be, and look, you're looking at a 60 year time frame on testosterone. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's an interesting perspective, and I do hear that a lot from patients like, hey, am I going to be on this forever? How am I going to deal with this? But uh, just to go back to your original, the guy who we're talking about, one thing that is very cool about low testosterone especially is that you can modify your levels and improve your levels by some lifestyle things, eating healthy, losing weight, getting your sugars under control if you're diabetic, exercise, you know, these things can boost your testosterone. But at the same time, I don't necessarily agree with telling guys to just change their lifestyle. Because here's the thing, you're coming to me with a problem. You have low testosterone, you have low energy, your motivation is not great. It's hard. You're stuck in a loop sometimes where you want to, but you don't have the energy to go to the gym. You don't have the energy or the focus or the, the willpower to really get that diet going. Yeah, you're not seeing any results. You're not seeing results. So you need that testosterone boost to actually get you, help you get to that goal. So it's kind of like one of those things where I don't necessarily believe that the answer is always lose weight and eat healthy because listen, I'm always going to push that. Sometimes it is. And sometimes you have to have that conversation with the patient, but sometimes it's, Hey, listen, we're going to put you on testosterone. I know you're trying. This is going to hopefully help you get over that hump and really get to a place where you want to be, where you're exercising more. You feel like you're going to be losing way more, which you probably will. You're going to get more muscle mass. So it does help in that way. Going back to the part where you're saying, you know, is it forever? I think for the most part, yeah, I think it is a permanent thing. Is it permanent in the sense if you stop, are you doomed or <laughs> no? I, I mean, but I do think that once guys are on it, the only time I usually recommend stopping, and this is in our guidelines, is if you put them on testosterone and guys don't feel better within a you know six to eight month year time, maybe it's not the low testosterone that is causing their issues. And maybe you can talk about it with the patient about considering stopping it. I will tell you in general, I think we do a very good job of screening out the people who might have other issues going on. But, you know, it can be a scary idea of being on something forever. But at the same time, I think the scarier idea is not being you, not feeling good, not having energy, not having the sex life you want forever. 
And if you had to choose one or the other, I'm probably going to choose the one where I'm taking a medication to make me really live my best life and making sure that I can do what I need to do. And like I said, you know, you can always come off of it. Are your testosterone levels going to be high? Probably not. You're probably going to be at best the levels you were before you started at best. But that's also the choice you're able to have. I'm never going to force someone to stay on it forever. I love that. And I love just pointing out, I mean, people who listen to this podcast all the time will see that of like, I always say how we treat women is different than how we treat men, right? And like the conversation of like, hey, your quality of life matters, your energy matters, your sex life matters. We tell women and we, I'm stereotyping the nation, but like, well, well, you know, these hormones, you're going to be on them forever. And like, you know, women really get shamed into thinking quality of life does not matter for them. Or like, you're just going to have to keep taking this forever, you know? And they're like, well, I guess I don't want to take something forever. Like, it's just framed so different than the way you frame it. I'm like, of course, that's how we talk to men. We're like, your, your, <laughs> life, your life matters. And it's just interesting when I see women and hormones, it's really framed in a different way. It's, it's, it's a very interesting observation. Obviously, I'm a men's health specialist. So I usually, you know, unless it's like a kidney stone or something, I usually don't really work with many female patients anymore. But it's an important thing to hear and, and understand because I think that I think we all can do better. Doesn't matter, you know, and we can all do better and think about it from that perspective. So I appreciate that. One thing that's super interesting in just in my interest in female sexual function, about 30% of women will have an orgasm by penis and vagina penetrative intercourse. And that's usually because the clitoris is stimulated, right? And again, we can't say clitoris, but it's the clitoris is the penis. And so I started seeing guys will come to see me for erectile dysfunction. And I had this amazing kind of round table with urologists. I'd love to get you in on this because I was trained, like you treat the guy, he's here for erectile dysfunction. Another argument would be like, you treat the couple right? He's going to take this erection, newly erect, you know, Viagra, super penis home <laughs> and maybe have never sure. talked to this person and is going to change her life. And, and again, I'm stereotyping a heterosexual couple here for illustrative purposes. But so some urologists will be like, you're treating the couple. Has he even talked to her that he's going to bring home a super penis now? Right. And is that important? Is that important as a physician to care about that? This would be an awesome like counter table or whatever at some urology thing of like, yeah, because you know the people who bring the Viagra back to our clinic because he never talked to her about it and now he wants, or maybe he got started on testosterone. Now he wants sex four times a week. Never talked to her about it. And so I think, you know, amongst sexual issues in couples, it's this lack of communication. It's not like the body parts that are the problem. It's this lack of communication and like, honey, I'm going to the doctor to talk about how I can have more desire and better erections. Are you interested in that with me? Right? Like that's the part that never happens. And I just wonder the role of the physician, because you're going to get the physician who's like, who cares? He's my patient. And then you're going to get the physician who's like, he's going to want to put the penis in the vagina. Are we trying to optimize the situation for him? Or are we not going to help him with that part? And it's actually, that's his goal though. Well, you have a really unique opportunity though, because you can see both patients. I mean, just... From my experiences, I usually ask 
who their partner is. Like the first thing, whenever I do like my first initial visit, I ask if they're sexually active. I ask if they have a partner. I ask if they're married, single, relationship, whatever it is, just so I have an understanding. They're interested in men, women, both. You know, I ask every patient that those questions just so I know kind of what I'm dealing with, how old they are, how long they've been in a relationship. It's just important exactly the stuff that you're saying. And I have seen patients more and more talking to me about how they're female partner is actually having some discomfort with sexual intercourse. So I have seen that more in the last year and a half, really. So I don't know what's changing. I hope it's changing. I hope people are being more considerate and thinking about these things. So so that's good. But yeah, you're right. It is something that we really, there's like a, a missing piece there that we really are not identifying enough of, especially when we're doing things like penile implants and stuff like that. And it's always important to try to incorporate the partner. But the problem is, you know, you have to respect your patient's privacy. Some guys don't want their partner to know that they get a penile implant or things like that. So, you know, there's complexity there. But in general, I think the idea of sex for men, we have to do a better job of, because I think you're right. Most guys think of sex as penetrative intercourse. And the truth is, that's not the only kind of sex that exists. And it's kind of hard for guys to get that. But one thing that I always tell my patients, especially those struggling with erectile dysfunction is like, hey, you know, in the moment, if you're not able to get it up, that's okay. There's other kinds of intercourse you can participate in. Oral, you can use your hands, there's petting, there's the outer course, all this kind of stuff. And I think it's very important that we do a better job of educating men on that. And the other aspect of that is that I think that men don't understand that sex doesn't always end when you ejaculate, right? The female partner also <laughs> is still there and they may not have orgasmed yet and just because you're done doesn't mean that the whole experience is done. And it's a communication thing. It's an important thing that we can educate our patients with. So I've really found that as a big way to, big thing to stress over uh, the last few years with my patients, especially the guys who have erectile dysfunction, you know, even the younger guys who say, oh, I'm in the moment, I lose it. You know, just go do something else. Keep doing something with them and you'll get it back probably because you're not focusing on yourself. So there's just, it's a really important point that I think we really need to continuously stress to men out there. For women who suffer from any of the broad range of peri- and postmenopausal symptoms and want a safe and effective non-drug solution that they can trust, only Bonafide creates proprietary natural medical products that have earned the uncompensated recommendation of over 8,300 doctors. Bonafide's mission is to provide women with naturally powerful remedies to safely treat the natural symptoms that occur throughout their lives, from PMS to menopause and everything else along the way. As you ladies know, I'm obsessed with vulvar skincare to increase pleasure and decrease pain with intimacy and daily life in general. They have Reverie, which provides powerful hormone-free relief from vaginal dryness with an easy-to-use vaginal insert that renews your body's moisture for everyday comfort and intimacy. So give Bonafide a try today. No hormones and no prescription required. Free shipping and to get 20% off your first purchase when you subscribe to any of their products, go to hellobonafide.com slash notbroken and use the promo code not broken. That's hello, B-O-N-A-F-I-D-E dot com slash not broken and code not broken for 20% off at checkout. Viagra doesn't work in everybody, right? 
And I would say erections aren't the goal. Like there are plenty of vagina owners who are like, I would love to spend some time with you. And it doesn't even need to have an erect penis involved putting in my vagina. And I'm going to have a ball. And like that perspective's missing. And then that a man can have a satisfying sexual life with orgasms without having a hard penis. And I'm like, where's the book? Where's the education tool? Like, where can I send that guy? Because they don't know how. But like, I know it's possible because I have patients who say, oh yeah, we do, we do hands and we do mouth and whatever we do. And I, I have an orgasm, but I don't have an erect penis. And I'm like, that is so shrouded that people don't know that that's possible. Yeah. I mean, I have a good sex therapist in South Florida, Dr. Lisa Paz. She's been on my podcast a couple of times. She is awesome. She's amazing. So she's a good friend of mine. She's in South Florida, but you know, I think she does telemedicine now, but she's a really wonderful resource. I, I do send often my patients to her for these kinds of issues. And she's great with biopsycho, like the, the biofeedback and all of these educational tools, different strategies, different ways to get people off based off of what they're working with. And so uh, shout out to her. She's great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you know of any book? Justin, I that think you I have a book have. to write. That you have a book to write. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm down. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be great to have, like, what percentage of men with erectile dysfunction does the Viagra and the Viagra cousins not work for? Ooh, I don't know that that number at all. I don't know if there is a number. Maybe, maybe it exists, but I would say there's a lot of different factors. 30%? Do you have a number? Do you know? No, I don't have a number, but somebody has statistics on, and this is a sex therapist, somebody has statistics on the amount of Viagra prescriptions that are never refilled. There is data on that. Interesting. And it's quite, it's quite high. Well, I mean, listen, you know, so erectile dysfunction is by far the most common sexual health issue that, that men deal with, you know. It's said about 50% of men have have erectile dysfunction at some point. You know, it's but the the general rules is about 40% of men in their 40s, 50% of men in their 50s, 60% in their 60s, 70% in their 70s. No pun intended, erectile dysfunction is actually on the rise in younger people. There's been data suggesting as high as 30% of men under the age of 40 also have erectile dysfunction. Is it correlated with the increase of anxiety and mood disorders or health status in general, or I'm watching porn and I don't match up? Yeah, it's a controversial topic. Some people want to blame porn. Some people want to blame mental health. Some people want to blame obesity and poor diets and lack of exercise. I think it's probably a combination of all of these things. And I think that there's individual situations. What I was alluding to, though, is that that lack of refill is a lot of the younger guys who come in to see me, it's usually an anxiety component. You know, they have a bad night. They can't get it up. They come in freaking out, thinking, you know, is this the end of their erections? Like, are they doomed forever? And you know, you provide them with reassurance. You give them a couple Viagra or a Cialis, and you say, "Hey, you know, try this." It gets their you know confidence back, and boom, they stop using it. You never see them again. And that's a very common thing that we deal with. But I think it's also important for those younger guys and any guy really to understand that when you have erectile dysfunction. And we talk about satisfying your partner, even with erectile dysfunction, but how you react in the moment is actually very, very important. I didn't really think about this until when I was doing my training, I was with, a, you know, you have friends and people started coming up to me, women saying, you know, my partner 
like young women, they were like, you know, my ex-boyfriend had erectile dysfunction. He blamed it on me. And I was, they're like, is it my fault? And I was like, no, of course not. Unless you're doing something crazy, it's not really your fault. There's no way. And I started hearing that question enough that we ended up doing a study. And what we did is we surveyed over 13,000 women from over 130 different countries. And we had them complete a survey, seeing whether they were getting blamed for erections. Did they experience guys with erectile dysfunction and how that impacted their overall health? And what we found was about 80% of women of the 13,000 had experienced at least one male partner lose their erections during sexual activity. And more concerning though, is that one out of seven women were blamed by their male partner for their erectile dysfunction, which is very problematic. And women older than 40 experience both blame and erectile dysfunction experiences, which is less surprising, <laughs> that part obviously with their partner more, but was really what was more concerning was that the women that were blamed for their partner's erectile dysfunction, they were more likely to end a sexual encounter. They felt a stronger sense of responsibility of worry. They were less sexually satisfied and they were more likely to end a relationship due to their partner's ED. So, you know, what does this mean? It means that, you know, Guys, like we have to be conscious of what we're doing, right? Even in a bad situation for yourself, you can't really project those insecurities. It's, it's not a great situation, but how you react in the moment is just as important to your satisfaction as to your partner's satisfaction and the relationship as a whole. And that's where communication comes in. You know, sometimes it's just not your day and that's okay as long as, you know, you're communicating in an appropriate manner. This needs to be on like Good Morning America, this paper. <laughs> like that is, <laughs> it is a huge amount. I see it all the time. And the other thing I see a lot, and again, whenever I gender stereotype, I like to acknowledge like we're gender stereotyping and this is, you know, everybody's different. But the woman makes the erectile dysfunction mean something about her. I'm unattractive. He must be cheating on me. I'm not good in bed. She always personalizes it. But we all do, right? Because I, I think that's inherently human, right? And I think when guys do it, when the guys blame, my assumption is because we all understand sex is a very intimate thing, right? Like it's a very personal experience and especially in a relationship, people, it's a very important thing for a lot of people in a relationship. And if you're not able to perform as a man, you know, you're like this masculine identity comes back into play potentially. And you kind of just have this insecurity and you're worried. So it's not my fault. It can't be my fault. And, and you end up blaming. And it's actually the worst thing you can do for the relationship and for your partner's confidence. And at the end of the day, it's really how you interact with the person. At the same time, though, when I published that, when we published that paper, one interesting feedback that I did get from a couple people, because I engage with people online all the time, I always like to hear people's opinions. Some guys said, you know, it's not always this, that experience. Sometimes we felt guys felt that the partner would laugh at them or mock them or things like that. So it does go both ways, of course. It goes both ways. Yes. Obviously, I did not survey that part. I've never done a study on that. And I'm sure we can do that. It's probably not hard. But obviously, male blame is very important. We should not be doing that. But I do think it's important that I do bring that up because I don't want to be inherently completely biased <laughs> based off of the study. Totally. And this is our like break for the public service announcement for all body parts of like, if you've been blamed, shamed, insulted, made fun of for your body part in the past, 
like I saw a lady, she was in her like 60s. I was going to do an exam and she's like, I'm so sorry for like how it is down there. It's just really like really ugly and bad and blah, blah. And I'm like, always curious. I'm like, where'd that come from? Right. And she's like, oh, my, my ex-husband. And I'm like, well, I've seen more vulvas than like most all humans. And I'm like, I'll just put you on the bell curve. Right. And I'm like, you're totally, you're totally normal. But we carry this. And it's like my public service announcement, I think you agree, is like, you're allowed to let that stuff go. Absolutely. Like that was, somebody said something once because they had their own insecurity or they just wanted to make you feel bad. But like, you probably have a normal penis and you probably have a normal vulva. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful point because we do have this, uh, and I do kid around about it sometimes, like, and you said it yourself, like we see more penises and vaginas than virtually anyone around. So... Oh, everyone comes to us and, and they have their insecurities because they don't, realistically, you're just not going to see as many as we do. And that's, I mean, if you do, God bless, whatever, enjoy yourself. But at the end of the day, like, you know, we do have that unique experience, a way to guide people and say, you know, this is normal because I hear it for penises all the time. You hear it for vulvas all the time. You know, like it's just this inherent insecurity that maybe something was said one time and you just let it linger with you. But at the end of the day, you're right. It is important, you know, people body shame for whatever reason, but you can let it go because most of the time it's not, it's not true. And carrying it forward can affect your current sex life. And like, so being able to deal with that. So help us out. You're a perfect person to ask. I've got this partner and he's got erectile dysfunction and he won't talk to me about it. I want to get him to see the doctor because I'm kind of worried about his heart, but he will not talk about it. He shuts it down every time I try to bring it up. These women are like, what are we supposed to do? We care. And he is not even coming to the table to have this conversation. And I've tried multiple times. Like I hear this not infrequently. What would your tips for these people be? It's kind of hard because I think guys, even though they may shut it down, some some of them react differently, different ways, right? Some of them will close out and just be kind of more quiet. Some will be loud and, you know, fight back or whatever, not necessarily abusive, but can be very confrontational about it. I do think that the most important thing you can say is, you know, don't worry about it. Not in terms of like, not that it's not a big deal, I think is somewhat of a good way to kind of get someone thinking about that it's like not to freak out about. But I do think that at the end of the day is, oof, this is hard. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure this out. <laughs> so I'm actually so glad I stumped you. I'm like, oh, I didn't know it was possible. This is fun. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is usually a lot of guys find self-motivation. They do find self-motivation. And I think that if you can, you know, the way that I think guys think is if you can find a way to make it seem like it's his idea, maybe it's a, it's even a better idea. Maybe that'll get him in. But I do think that, you know, when you're talking about your goals with your partner, if you're struggling in the bedroom, and maybe you can just say, you know, this is what I want out of my sexual experience. What are you trying to get out of your experience? And maybe not right after it happens, maybe before something happens or, or just talking about it in that regard, maybe you can kind of find a middle ground. If you see that your partner is having other issues, they're a smoker, they're obese, you can start off with those things because obviously the other stuff, you know, your sexual health is health. And as we've clearly seen through our conversation today, all of these other health factors directly impact your sexual health. So maybe getting him in to get checked for his diabetes or his 
high blood pressure or his overweight or just an annual checkup, we'll get his doctor talking about it and get him talking about it. So maybe indirectly you can can get there. I think it's just hard because every relationship is so different. And I don't think there's a, a one size fits all for this answer, because I think in some situations, just saying, hey, you need help, go get, go to the doctor, let's get this fixed together, I'll go with you, is the answer, right? And some way, sometimes it's, I don't know if you have a problem, maybe we should just talk about it together. I'm happy to go to the doctor and then you can go to your doctor and we'll both make sure that we're okay. That's a less you know, aggressive way of doing it. But I think at the end of the day, you kind of have to know your partner. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And if you're struggling, maybe some of your friends, listen, all the guys have, like everyone, you can hear the stats. Guys have erectile dysfunction. Maybe your good friend's husband has erectile dysfunction and maybe your friend will talk to them and maybe someone somehow it comes up and maybe your friend's friend tells them about this great medication that they took once and now they're living like they're 25 again. So you did stump me, but I'm trying to give you some kind of different, uh, different outlets here. I love it. Yeah, we do such a crappy job of sex education in this country slash in this world. And people don't talk about sex when it's going well, right? So we don't talk about sex. It's going great, but like, what's an ideal number for you? It's going great, but like, how do you really like to orgasm? Like, the, you know, the conversation that can happen when it's going well sets you up for the conversation of when it's going shitty. And inevitably, it's going to go shitty. Like, just plan on it. Absolutely. You're going to have a baby. You're going to be breastfeeding. You're going to get low testosterone. Somebody's going to get cancer. You're going to have, a, you know, kids are going to be stressing you out. Whatever, like, it's, just plan on it going shitty if that gives you motivation to talk about it when it's going well, because then it helps for when it's going shitty. I think that is an awesome, awesome recommendation. Great advice. It's all about communication. It really is. At the end of the day, any relationship, any situation in a relationship, whether it's sex, money, work, just living, it's all about communication. And, and why is sex any different? You know, it shouldn't be. I know. It's so easy for us to say because we look at like 15 genitals a day. We're like, it's just sex. And like realize like it took us a lot of years to get this, at least for me, it took us me a lot of years to be able to like have a podcast about sex, <laughs> like, right? And I'm like, just talk about sex. Like it's your hobby. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, listen, I do a genital exam like 20 times a day. And every time it's a new patient, most of the time they're like completely taken aback that I'm touching their genitals. And, and I say, hey, listen, I know this is new for you. It's not new for me. Don't worry, I've done this a million times. I understand this is uncomfortable. It'll be done quickly. But, you know, we forget. I literally do, <laughs> I do it every day. And, you know, it's just another thing, but this is people's sexual organs, it's their genitals, and usually very few people see them or engage with them or touch them. So I think we are very lucky in that regards for that people to trust us with these very intimate conversations. And I think you agree that's one of the best parts of this job is that we get to hear stuff that, you know, they wouldn't tell their brother, their sister, their mother, their best friend, and they're disclosing that to us because they know we can help them. And that's what I tell every single guy. Listen, it sucks to talk about these things. It's not fun to acknowledge these things. But if you don't talk about it and you don't come in and you don't acknowledge the problems, how can we fix problems that we don't know about? We can't. 
So, you know, it's just really important whether you're a, a penis owner, vulva owner, you go talk with your doctor with any issues that you may have, because otherwise we're just not going to be able to help you. Hope is not a treatment plan, people. <laughs> <laughs> so I have like these amazing questions I want to ask you. We'll, we'll keep it somewhat short for the people who don't want four-hour podcasts. What's with the products online that say they're going to make you have more semen or different flavored semen? What's up with that? I need your hot take. So my hot take is I, I don't think there any of them are, are worth anything. There's no good data on any of these things. It's all theoretical why pineapple makes your semen taste sweeter. You know, it's all theoretical. One of the most common questions I get from guys is, hey, my semen is like yellow one day, it's clear the other day. Why? And my answer is, I don't know. Could be diet, could be, you know, sometimes you're dehydrated, maybe you're drinking a little bit more water, maybe you ejaculate you haven't ejaculated in 4 days and last time you ejaculated was a day and a half between. So there's so many different factors involved that I don't really think that these supplements are going to do anything. Can they potentially do? I'm sure, maybe, but I mean, I think if you're really concerned about these things, maybe you're on a medication like Flomax or something that's causing retrograde ejaculation where your semen volume has decreased. Maybe there's other things going on. Maybe you have diabetes and your semen volume is decreasing because you're also getting retrograde ejaculation because you have nerve issues. But there's other things at play that maybe before buying a supplement, go talk to your doctor about it. And then I can see if there's something else going on. Thank you. Thank you for helping all the people save their money. What's with penis enlarging procedures? I'm starting to see like, they were big when I was in residency. They were big. They fell off. I didn't hear about them for like a while. And now they're coming back again. That's like, an what's appropriate happening? name for falling off because that's what I think a bad penis enlargement surgery can do. God, buyer, buyer beware. <laughs> yeah. You know, I am not a believer in, in doing those kinds of surgeries. I, I do think they exist. I don't think that they're a good option. There are newer things like injections that can cause increased girth of your penis. But overall, I really think that the risk is way greater than the reward in these situations. Because often you do see if something goes wrong, and that's the ironic thing, if something goes wrong, whether it's an infection, scarring. Guess what's going to happen? Your penis is actually going to shrink. It's going to be smaller than it was before the surgery. So I, I really don't think it's worth it. It's all cash. You're going to be spending money and you're really putting your sexual, not only your penis size, it can compromise the nerves. It can compromise your erections. It can do so many things that I really just don't think it's worth it. I, I think you know, part of being you is, you know, accepting yourself and your body. There's things we can do and there's things we could do and maybe things we shouldn't do. And maybe this is one of those things I, I don't think you should do. I love your forthrightness with it. Somebody had asked to come on my podcast and I like checked them out on their internet and it was like girthy injections. And, and I'm like, hell no. I, I think they're preying to men's insecurities, number one. Number two, these are men that probably don't actually know if they have a female partner, what their female partner actually wants to have an orgasm. It's not a girthier ridge or, you know, whatever it is. And it's like lack of education, self-image body stuff, ignorance, and they're just taking their money. So like, to me, I'm like, until I see, you know, the AUA or somebody legit being like, no, 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 this is legit. I'm like, oh, buyer beware. I agree 100%. Don't put that by me. <laughs> Don't put that stuff in your penis. Nope, nope. 
So you did a paper on the inaccuracies of social media. And one of the things that you found on it was like this damn myth of sperm retention. The like the health benefits of not ejaculating, basically. Like, where did that come from? And like, why won't it die? Uh, so we, we did this paper. We looked at men's health topics in TikTok and Instagram. We We did a content analysis. Basically, we looked at six topics of men's health looked at the top posts we saw whether you know they're educational who they were by and gave them an accuracy score and and basically we found that by far the most popular topic on TikTok and Instagram was something called semen retention with over 1.2 billion with a b views on TikTok and over 1 million posts on Instagram which is crazy all of it was completely inaccurate it was the most inaccurate posts, there was no accurate information. Not one healthcare provider was discussing these topics. It was all just random people who were discussing this thing. So what is semen retention? Semen retention is it's kind of an ancient concept originally. It was Karma Sutra kind of thing where it was a sexual practice that actually was not meant in any malignancy, right? You could have a sexual practice. It was orgasming without ejaculating. And then at some point, it started turning into this idea that your ejaculate, when you ejaculate, your seed leaves you, your strength, your testosterone, your muscle, like your whole masculinity leaves you. And, and I don't know when that turning point happened. It probably happened in the last five, 10 years. And it became this kind of movement. And at the same time, this other similar movement called NoFap, which is similar in that it does practice the idea of semen retention. However, it focuses more of an anti-porn idea of anti-masturbation. And it's kind of a, I would say, a direct response to people who claim to be addicted to porn. But at the end of the day, these two movements both claim that Retaining your seed or by not ejaculating will increase your testosterone, improve your skin, improve your hair, you know, make you focus better, make you be more desirable. And quite simply, it's all complete BS. You know, there's no data supporting this. If you think from physiological standpoint, it really doesn't even make sense because you know, simple puberty. What happens during puberty to men when their testosterone goes up naturally? What do they, What happens to their skin if we're talking about skin? Gets a little rough. They get acne. So, you <laughs> know, your testosterone. <laughs> and that's something that I always ask my patients when I put them on testosterone. Do you, do you develop any acne? So the fact that your skin's improving by retaining your seed and your testosterone is going, it makes zero sense, okay? It makes absolutely no sense. Your skin's not going to get better. And there's really no data to support this. Problem is, though, that people are watching it and they're practicing. And I think it's okay if you don't want to ejaculate all the time. That's fine. But if you're trying to do it with a goal of you know, self-improvement, I, I don't think that that's the right way to do it. You know, your sexual health and your sexual activity is whatever you want. I'm not telling you, you need to masturbate. You need to have sex. You can do whatever makes you happy, but to, to do something thinking that there's going to be an improved outcome that just isn't there, that's just important for people to know. So yeah, I am a very a strong anti-semen retention person. Just because it's pointless mumbo jumbo. Not because it's dangerous, but it's just mumbled. Are, you, are people just going to have nocturnal ejaculate when they're asleep? Some guys have nocturnal emissions, but the other thing is like frequent ejaculations, more frequent ejaculations actually improves your fertility. So if you're trying to have a kid and you're holding off from ejaculating until like the time of ovulation, you're actually not 
giving your sperm the best shot. Your quality of sperm is not that great. We usually recommend guys who are, who are trying to have family planning to ejaculate either every day or every other day. And there has been known studies to show the benefit of sperm parameters for that frequent ejaculation. So withholding actually can compromise your sperm quality, if anything. But I don't think most of these guys- just older? Yeah, it's it's really just kind of sitting there. It is kind of just sitting there and you know you're not literally cleaning the pipes, you know. But I think I think the important thing here is understanding misinformation. We've established that everyone's going online. They're all looking for the health information whether it's a man, woman, however you identify, but you want to learn more about yourself and that's okay. I, I always encourage people to under, to try and research, but I think that you have to understand when you're going on social media and on these platforms like what you're looking at. And I think when you're looking, you want to ask yourself a few questions. One, you want to say, what is my goal? What am I trying to learn from whatever topic I'm searching about myself? Am I trying to figure out an intervention? Am I trying to learn more about the topic? What am I trying to learn? Two, who am I learning from? Who is on this video? And like I said, most of the men's health topics that we saw were not healthcare providers. And that information was terrible. The healthcare providers that we saw gave excellent information in general. So, you know, when you're looking for these topics online and you're on social media, you're on TikTok, should you be listening to an 18-year-old kid who tells you he doesn't jerk off, hasn't jerked off in three weeks and he's living his best life? Or should you listen to a physician who's saying, you should probably, you know, go get your blood pressure checked or something. You know, I think it, <laughs> it sounds funny saying it out loud, but people are doing it, right? Like this is what I'm seeing. People are doing it. So you have to ask what you want to learn. Who are you learning from? And then three, like, what are you going to do with that information? Are you going to follow that information blindly? Are you going to go talk with your doctor about it? You know, how trustworthy do you feel about this? Is it something you can do just a lifestyle change that isn't going to impact your other things? So there's a lot of different things to consider when you're approaching information online. And that's how I recommend people look at it because it's easy to get caught up in like the scrolling and the looking. But if you can take a step back and say, like, what am I actually looking at and what is going on here? Sometimes it comes a little clearer. That's such good wisdom. I have two final questions because people need to know this. Does ejaculating decrease your risk of prostate cancer? Sub question on that link between vasectomy and prostate cancer. All right. So we were talking about this before. So that is a great question. So there was a study that came out a few years ago showing that 21 ejaculations or more a month decreases your risk of prostate cancer. It was statistically significant. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is this, you know, you should not be ejaculating 21 times a month or more unless you want to, because at the end of the day, that is not going to prevent you from getting prostate cancer or not. There's so many other factors involved, genetics, family history, smoking. Will that one thing save you from getting prostate cancer? A, probably not. In fact, I would almost guarantee not. And then B, we'll never be able to prove it either way. So if you're stressing out out there, you're saying, I need to ejaculate 21 times a month because I'm going to be cancer-free, just don't do it because it's not. It's just going to increase more stress in your life. If you're ejaculating more than 21 times a month anyway, just go enjoy yourself. But but that should never be your goal because it's all relative. And although there's data to support it, you know you have to understand the relative risk that we say. And and really the the relative impact on this is is really negligible. 
And then vasectomy. So yeah, the data is, is very good here that we know that vasectomy does not cause prostate cancer. There's a lot of other things that guys often ask about vasectomy. It does not compromise your orgasm. It does not compromise your erections. It does not compromise your testosterone levels. Your semen volume, it does not compromise either. Your sperm is about 5 to 10% of your full semen volume. So you're really going to be the same. At the end of the day, what I tell my patients and what guys need to know is a vasectomy does not change anything except for your fertility. And that's it. You're going to be shooting blanks. Everything else is going to be the same. It's a beautiful procedure that we highly recommend for all men who are not interested in having any further kids or kids at all. It's a great procedure and it takes a huge burden off of your partner in terms of, you know, not having to take medications. Tube tied is a much more invasive procedure than a vasectomy as well. Yeah, the last stats I saw on that, four people die a year from getting their tubes tied in America. Zero people die of getting a vasectomy. That's a crazy statistic. Four people is way too many. That's insane. Four people is too many. I agree. Uh, Dr. Justin Dubin, thank you for joining me. This was an amazing podcast episode. This was so much fun. This is so much fun. If you When you get two physician podcasters together, they have fun. <laughs> I agree. And we're excited to have you on our podcast too. So you're going to be oh, coming on ours too. I'll share that for my people. And your podcast is called Man Up, A Doctor's Guide to Men's Health. Check it out. They've been out for a year. It's good stuff. For your other half. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate it. Hey friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com membership. I'll see you on the inside.